So, time for the one episode that everyone likes from this series. This is the big one, the one written by DC Fontana, the one she insisted she get. She's actually working as a, uh, let's see, story editor and associate producer on this show. And she was like, I, I want to write for this show. Let me write for this show. At least one episode. So they gave her one episode. But this is it. And it's the one that basically everyone agrees is actually good from TAS, and in fact is the one that pretty much everyone agreed was continuity. Well, Roddenberry himself agreed with that, yeah, reportedly. I wasn't actually able to narrow that down, but a lot of people repeat that fact, or fact. The fact of the matter is, the groups who really considered this to be continuity are the Akudas, since the Akudas designed so much of what I consider to be modern Trek, a.k.a. TNG, DS9, and Voyager, that bundle there. Uh, a lot of that is built on the bones that they set up, so the fact that they consider this canon means that a lot of it is used for, uh, going forwards. In fact, you'll notice that the relationship between Spock and Sarek, and the nature of the bullies, and Spock's you know, dilemma between himself, all of this stuff fits neatly into the rest of track. In fact, it fits so neatly, it even fits into the Kelvin timeline. So, yeah, no, this one is probably definitively con contiguous, regardless of canon. Credit to Fontana, too. She's, she's basically the Vulcan specialist, especially of this era. While certain people would both write and perform Vulcans well in future stuff, she always had her finger on the pulse of that species quite well, and manages to get across a lot of the specifics and nuances of it in a way that I very much appreciate. Talk about a few of those as we go through here. But I wanted to talk about one of those weird quirks of writing. This is something I've actually talked about in creative writing before. I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the show. The idea that... Oh, by the way, I did manage to actually watch this episode. Woo! I'll talk about that in a second, sorry. I mean, well, I guess I can just say it now, because I had I had to actually watch the episode. Otherwise, I would have missed Vulcan's giant moon! <clears throat> in creative writing, a lot of times stories can just kind of develop from ideas. Or needs. Okay. I want to do a story about Spock's past to help describe how he got to this point. Okay. But I kind of want someone to actually go back and be there, not just have it be a flashback. So there has to be time travel. Okay. Time travel, I don't want to use that casually, and, and I don't want to have to sit down and spend a decent chunk of time on an already short episode. These are 22-minute episodes in order to explain that. So I need some kind of pre-existing time travel. I've got it. The Guardian of Forever, which doesn't require a big explanation because it's already an established point. And I'll just have the opening be them casually using the Guardian of Forever for historical purposes. Comment about that in a second. And then there you go. And you can see how it sort of progresses like that. Fontana herself has spoken about this type of writing before, and I wanted to point it out here because she's also spoken of it in this episode. Casual time travel for historical purposes. Again, it's the second time... <sighs> Arguably, it's happened more than twice, but it's the second major time this has happened in the TOS slash TAS era. And, um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what to say about that. Time travel is such a terrifying thing to work on, such a horrifyingly monstrous thing to, to fiddle with, and has so many possible ramifications and repercussions for usage and misusage. And I've already talked about this. Time travel is that great trick that almost every writer wants to do, because if you pull it off well, it's awesome. But if you don't, it's face-palming. Or you just turn off your brain and don't think about it. 
Now, I point that last part out because I've seen really stupid time travel, and it's still a good thing. Because I happen to like Back to the Future. And I'm sorry, the time travel in Back to the Future is nonsense. It doesn't even begin to address or explain any of the actual intricacies or nuances of what they're doing. It's just a good film. And I'm okay with that because it's a good film. This is always that caveat. Some people like to point to me and say, oh, you just suck the joy out of thing. And those people are stupid. Because that's pretty much the opposite of what I want to do. I will comment in Back to the Future that the time travel is stupid, and then I will move on. Why? Because it's a good film. Now, the time travel in this episode is pretty stupid. You can see why I'm tying this in here. But it's okay, because it's a good episode. I'm still going to point out that the time travel is stupid. If you give me a wonderful meal, and there happens to be, and you overcooked the, the muffin, I am going to comment on the muffin, and then praise the rest of the meal. The end result does matter, after all. But I am very much one of those people who does not believe in the idea of just ignoring flaws. After all, even though Final Fantasy VI may be my favorite game of all time, it is a flawed game, and I would be doing it a disservice to ignore those flaws, right? I mean, hell, I, I apply that in real life, too. You know, if I was with someone, currently single, if I was with someone, I would not ignore anything that they do wrong or missteps or things that I would perceive to be flaws, because, again, that would be a disrespectful thing. It would be a disservice to them, just like I would expect them to do the return in me. As long as we don't go overboard with that, of course, because if you get to the point of ranting and raging about every little thing in something that's good like a good relationship, or a good game, or a good movie, then we have a problem. But this is a good episode. And credit where credit is due, they do some good stuff with it, too. Even the voice acting was only slightly stilted. I, I'm going to give a pass to Billy Simpson, who <sighs> came in and recorded all of his lines as his audition, and then they kept that as their final take. And it does show, to be completely blunt. But that's okay, because, um, well, we've already explained this, and I hate to bring it up for what I believe is actually the third time at this point. Budget. So moving on. So, casual time travel quickly and efficiently gets across the issue. Question, why is Kirk the only person immune? Other people were in the past doing the time traveling stuff too, and then Kirk comes back, and then Spock comes back, and then... Why is Kirk immune? Well, I actually do have an answer for this. The, the episode gives an extremely stupid answer. You can't be in more than one place at once. Because you were already tam tra time traveling, you couldn't also time travel there, even though he then time travels there. So, I, I, no, that doesn't work. No, I think the actual explanation is a little bit different and doesn't work. But I'm going to try. Hear me out, okay? I always bring this out when we talk about time travel. Uh, I actually need two of them for this one. So I'm going to, I actually have my Swiffer right here. I always keep this right at the desk. It's a good anti-dust anti tool. Make sure to dust regularly. Dust builds up very quickly, at least if you're in a computer room like me. I got into this habit back in the, the knock, because back when I was at the, the office center, because so many computers running nonstop, it dust build up, you wouldn't even believe. Anyways, all right. So for the sake of this, I want you to imagine that the back scratcher here is the Star Trek timeline, the prime timeline, if you will. I want you to imagine this Swiffer is the original timeline. Hear me out. So in the original timeline, Kirk goes on and becomes Captain and Thalen, I think it was. I wrote down his name. Yeah, Captain Thalen, the Andorian, becomes his first officer. Everything's cool. And then that Kirk goes into the Guardian of Forever to go off to Orion. 
Now, what happens to that Kirk, we don't know. And it is possible we will never know, because this timeline either collapses or is, uh, it just kind of does its thing. Because this is either type 2 or type 3 time travel. I, I, I'm using two different lines here, but that's just for visual purposes. If this is type 2 time travel, then what eventually happens is this timeline replaces this one. If it's type 3, then we've just got two separate timelines. Take your pick. It doesn't matter for the purposes of this demonstration. So they enter the portal. Now, what happened here is, bear with me, at the same point in the modified timeline, Kirk and Spock go into the portal to check out Orion. At the same time, the original Kirk, and, you know, well, not Thalen, but, you know, the original Kirk of the Thalen timeline, jumped into the portal to check out Orion. Now, what happened is the Kirk and Spock from the modified timeline get pushed out into the original timeline. Now, if you're paying attention, this is their first interaction with the original timeline, is when they both come from a timeline that doesn't exist yet into this original timeline. They then try to figure out what's going on. They say, hey, Guardian, can I do this? Yes, sure. And then Spock goes back over here. Now, if this is type 2 tra time travel, it would be better to showcase it with just one thing, because what happens is Spock is here, Spock dies. Stuff goes on, stuff goes on. Spock comes out of of the the modified timeline, goes back in time, and changes this timeline into the modified timeline. That's type 2. If it's type 3, then all that happens is there's two separate timelines, which I'm holding very awkwardly here, and Spock goes back and makes this timeline by virtue of altering time in general. And so now there is a new distinct timeline, which he then pops out of, along with Kirk, who is still there for reasons that are best not. See, this is why I think it's type 2 time travel. Because we know that the area around the Guardian is immune to, to alterations in time, and it makes more sense... Okay, that doesn't work either, because the other people wouldn't, wouldn't misremember either. See, there are holes in this, like I said. But the idea is that Kirk is in the, the null time zone. So, you know, go back to type 2 time travel here. So he just hangs out here, and as history has changed around him to the timeline that he remembers that he is technically from, he is unchanged because he's in the, the null time zone. And Spock comes back, they go back to the ship, and everything's cool. There are only two flaws with this way of making it work. I already pointed out one of them. The fact that the other people in the null time zone are from the original timeline. And they should be... No, actually, that does make sense. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. I am wrong, because they would be unaffected by the inclusion of the alternate Spock and the alternate Kirk coming into the original timeline. And so they are unaffected by it, because they were just recording history or whatever. So yeah, actually, never mind. That makes perfect sense. Okay, that flaw is gone. There is still a flaw, I'm afraid, though. And the flaw in this theory is the fact that when he goes back to alter time, rather than concluding the timeline that... rather than making the timeline that he is from, what he does is he makes a new timeline that he is from. Because his pet died, whereas in the previous timeline it didn't. Now, I get why she wanted the pet to die, but the, that that tiny little niggle, if she would just have changed that. If the, if Aichaya always died, that would smooth out this whole thing and it would all make perfect sense. I know, you're probably sitting there thinking, that makes perfect sense, but it does. Especially if the Guardian is deliberately messing with things. I've said many times that the Guardian has an agenda. We just don't know what exactly it is. And this would sit neatly into that idea that he would push out alternate versions of people from a timeline, from time that hasn't been crafted yet 
in order to ensure that they would then notice something is wrong and go back in time to conclude the timeline in the way that it feels it should be makes perfect sense if there's a, an entity, an identity, uh, and an agenda behind that. What do you all think? I, I'm hoping at least someone in chat, or excuse me, not a stream, at least someone in the comments says, Laura, you're stupid, just go with it. How many comments am I going to get saying that now? All right, so that's that explained. So, I wonder if Thalen became captain in the altered timeline. Hmm. Oh, if you're paying attention, this does mean that Star Trek, all of Star Trek, is actually an altered timeline, not an original timeline. Which makes perfect sense to me. After all, Star Trek Online did a similar story as well, and it's actually one of the more brilliant elements of STO, in my opinion. I wonder which one of those timelines was the original. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. <clears throat> so... This time, they talk up to the uh, the Guardian. They give him super specifics on where he wants to go. Where was this back when they needed to go back and find Edith Keeler? My God. <laughs> that would have been really useful back then. But instead, they go to a specific time, a specific place, in a specific way. Period, appropriate clothing, yada, yada, yada. They're much more prepped this time, is what I'm trying to say. It actually makes me wonder if this stuff could have been in the Guardian forever. Whatever, I'm getting off topic. And then we find the Kelvin kids. You remember those kids, right? In uh, Star Trek 2009. The bullies. The Vulcan bullies. You know, this is going to sound strange, but that actually is very logical to me. No, seriously. Children, by definition, do not have the kind of control adults do. It's because control is a thing that has to be learned. Both physical control, emotional control, and mental control. And so even from a logical mindset that is being trained all their life to think in terms of logical deduction, bullying Spock is logical. This is a good time to mention, as any, that logic does not follow a singular path. All logic has to do is follow a sequential sense-making. That that's all logic is. So everyone can, you know, as I, I, to quote myself here, logic is a path to a truth, not the path to the truth. Spock himself has a quote on this, which is a little more famous for some reason. I'm not sure why. But um, the idea that the kids would do this, this makes perfect sense. Logically, Spock is inferior. He is partially human and therefore is not actually at the level of standards that they have set. And remember, pride is a huge deal for Vulcans. We see that in this episode, too, because, of course, Fontana, you know, one of the women who pretty much established Vulcans as a concept, understands the whole pride thing since she invented it. But we see this pride thing fully on display here. So, that being said, maybe they should learn how to properly pronounce words. And I know that's coming from me, and Lord knows I have terrible problems with pronunciations because it's me. But Terran... <laughs> I know, I know, child voice actors. So, Spock, I, this this is really funny. <clears throat> Spock just shows up. He's like, hi, I'm your cousin. And Sarek's like, huh, okay, cool. You want to stay at my place? Yeah, sure, bro. I want you to picture that. I want you to picture someday someone you've never met before and have never heard of just walks up out of the blue. He's like, hey, I'm your, I'm, I'm your cousin. I'm here to visit. And you just take it at their word. I mean, there's only two things we could take out of this. Either these people are astonishingly trusting, which actually, given that they are Vulcans, that would make sense. Or, and I prefer this answer, 
Vulcans breed like rabbits, and they just can't keep track of them all. What's funny about this is it would take maybe 20 seconds to verify the existence of this person by simply checking records or making a phone call or equivalent when they have hover cars, for God's sakes. Anyways, <clears throat> so we find out that uh, Sarek is there. First of all, awesome to get Mark Leonard back. In fact, they were so uncertain if they were going to get Mark Leonard back for this that they actually had James Doohan voice him because James Doohan does all the voices in the show. And had Mark Leonard come in and dub over it since they were able to get him at the last minute. Awesome. Also makes him one of only three recurring characters between TOS and TAS. I'll point out the other two as we go. Either way, Sarek is like you once you are on the path of the Vulcan can never turn back. It is it once down that dark path of Vulcanism forever will it dominate your destiny. <clears throat> Sorry, I had something stuck in my throat there. First of all, no. But second of all, I mean, Spock, that's not true. Spock does not have the rest of his life dominated by the path of the Vulcan. In fact, most of the rest of his life and his character arc in the Star Trek movies in particular is all about learning that he doesn't have to adhere to that, that he can, you know, have his own path being the hybrid. You know, he's the original Star Trek hybrid story, a story that many, many, many other characters would carry forward in future Trek shows, right? So, I mean, no. Just wanted to comment on that because I like you, Sarek, but smack... So, you have to go ten days with no food or water in the forge. You know, I was going to complain about that, but once again, that is very Vulcan, isn't it? We must we must have discipline, we must be strong, and we must be great and awesome and pride. Pride. But what I find most interesting is there is no shame in failing. Except for you, because you're half human, and that's why you'll fail, you little miserable little failure. So you get out there and you succeed, right? Sarek doesn't say it that way. Mark Leonard manages the voice perfectly, but that is what he's saying. And once again, we see that bias on display. And it's so logical. Because he is inferior, after all. He is half-human. From a logical, objective perspective, he is an inferior specimen to a full Vulcan. Now, the problem with logic is that it's so often wrong. <laughs> Which... Good Trek acknowledges that. Good Trek actually points that and says, yeah. Yeah, no, that, no. Because, see, the thing is, Spock is a genius. I've actually talked about this more than once before. I'm pretty sure I brought it up in the movies. I know I brought it up in the TOS stuff. Spock is a genius by Vulcan standards. And Vulcans are considered to be supremely intellectual amongst the Federation species, amongst Trek in general. And Spock outshines all of them. Why? Well, <laughs> we see why in the very next scene. Because young Spock goes out in order to head out into the valley and deal with it right now. Days, uh, I think like a month actually, prior to his actual trial. Why? Well, because he's got something to prove. And so he pushes himself. And he pushes himself so much harder and so much further than anyone else does. That is why Spock is a damn genius. Not because he was born it, and not because he was raised it, but because he earned it. It's one of the things I like about Spock, and it's one of the reasons I do love this episode, is because it shows that on full display, that he ripped and teared and shredded himself forward way past anyone else. It's also one of the only character beats I really like in Star Trek 2009. 
was the fact that Spock was that far top tier. And even there, one of the things they, they could not help but mention, you know, it's astonishing what you've accomplished in light of your handicap. <laughs> Pricks. Uh, now, the funny thing is, while it was an insult in that movie, it was still a statement of fact. It's, it's objective fact. He is objectively inferior to a Vulcan. Except that's not true, is it? <laughs> Generally speaking, fiction tends to portray hybrids in one of two ways. Worst of both worlds, or best of both worlds. Spock is definitely one of the best of both worlds. Pun intended. Or reference intended, if you prefer. He is someone who has bothered to take from both sides of his heritage and make himself something unique from that. It's actually why Seven is one of my favorite characters over on Star Trek uh, Voyager. No, not because of that. The actress is a good actress, as I pointed out before, and as she's shown off in other works since. And, well, the arc of Seven, not Seven of Nine, not Annika Hansen, but Seven was exactly the same arc that Spock was pushing him through. It's just simultaneously better and worse done, because Voyager. <clears throat> and so little Spock goes out and pushes himself, and bad things happen, and Spock has a discussion with his younger self. And he hits the nail on the head beautifully. Now, I've talked about this a lot, and the good thing is, usually this is more an in-universe misconception than in the case of the writer being an idiot. A lot of people in-universe presume Vulcans have no emotions, and those people are ignorant, or actively stupid, but, but definitely ignorant, because ignorance is simply the lack of knowledge. They are incorrect. Vulcans have extremely powerful emotions, and we've seen this many, many times. Spock lays this out flat out here. We, are, we have emotion. We have strong, powerful emotion. We just keep it under control. We have discipline, and we retain that discipline, and that is the path of the Vulcan. That is the choice that you have before you if you choose to go down that route then what you will do is have a long and hard road towards that kind of perfection. So then the pet dies. That sucks. Aichaya. Poor Aichaya. Everyone just won't stop riffing about how fat he is. Film, uh, NBC's executives absolutely blew a gasket over this. You can't... Remember, this is a kid's show because it's an animation show and 100% of all animations for kids, right? In the interest of fairness, it would probably be until the 90s when people would actually start to figure out that animation could be for something other than for children. See Animaniacs and Batman the Animated Series for two good examples of, of pushing that agenda and throwing it out the window. Because animation is simply a tool, right? And yes, obviously anime certainly gets a fairly large uh, stake in the credit for that as well. But my point is... The prevalent theory was that this was a kid's show because it was animated for no other reason. For absolutely no other reason. And so the idea of having a pet die in an animated kid's show was just something that, they're, oh, you can't do that. What's funny is I've read several slightly dis... dis uh, reports that don't agree with each other. Dis disoccurring? Reports about why that is exactly and how this actually got into thing. But the thing that I was able to pinpoint most concretely is that when NBC was making this show originally, they were so budget-starved that they allowed Filmation to basically be off the leash, which means Filmation had the final creative say. So Filmation made the call here, not NBC. And uh, Ronberry and Fontana both went to bat for this idea hard. Now, 
I this might be one of the only good things Roddenberry's ever done in his life, but I will also give huge credit to Fontana, who, by her own account, worked very hard and championed this idea very hard, and never received any particular feedback about that, which is strange, because I'm guessing people just weren't telling her, the associate producer, that there was so much pushback against this idea. You, you see what I mean with the differing accounts. This, this is the era of Trek in general. There's so many just, uh, who knows what's going on. The bottom line is... Their mentality was one that I agree with. Showing the death of a pet is something that a kid probably should see, as horrible as that sounds. Because I have always agreed, and this, this is true uh, for several people as well, the idea, hell, I talked about this in the MLP streaminations, the idea that the death of a pet is usually how human beings are introduced to the concept of death, to the idea of death and what that means. Some people, like me, Get introduced to it by people first, before we have pets of similar matter, since my pet didn't die until I was in my 20s. But the point remains. And the idea here of making sure to emphasize that point, and not to do it for schlock reasons. Like, this this was done properly, I think. They didn't even drag it out. And the pet died saving his life, definitively. And was allowed to go out with dignity, rather than prolong it. And the idea that all things must die in time, and just this kind of concept, that is a very mature adult way to look at it. And again, it's correct. So, I'm with it. Then they get back. They change the death of the pet. I already complained about that. This episode ends on a bit of a wah-wah. But what really makes me sad, let's ignore the wah-wah for a moment. What really makes me sad about this episode is Spock never repairs his connection with Sarek. We know this. We've seen Unification Part 1 and 2. And, I mean, this is probably the closest Spock and Sarek have been, possibly in their lives, is when Spock is posing as his distant cousin, who he's never heard of. And only with that distance can Sarek allow himself to get along with his son, because now the veil, he, it's referenced in this very episode, you know, the, the, the demands of the father uh, insist on perfection or something like that. I forget exactly how he phrases it. But there's an insistence. The, he, he holds Spock to a different ideology, and so he treats Spock differently. But if he just saw Spock and removed the, the veil of my son from that, the two actually would probably get along quite well. And a lot of history supports this, up to and including that final mind meld with Picard over in Unification. It's a damn shame. And it adds to the tragedy of unification, and another reason why this episode is both canon and kind of awesome. I hope you have enjoyed. I will see you all next time.